Well, I know that all of you have lots and lots and lots of friends because you're such awesome people. And as you interact with your friends and your colleagues and maybe fellow employees or employers, I'm sure every once in a while you come across someone that's a little distasteful, someone that you're like, I don't know if I really, I don't know if I really like this person. I'm not sure we have chemistry. What would you say are some of the things in other people that turn you off the most? What are some of your interpersonal pet peeves, in other words? Just think about that. Two, two of them that come to mind for me are posers and braggarts. I just can't handle that. So a poser is a person that sort of puts on a front that pretends to be someone they're not. Being inauthentic is, is a real turnoff. And the other type of person that's difficult to be around at times is, is a braggart. Someone that boasts about themselves, their accomplishments, their possessions. And I'm sure all of you be like, yeah, those are, those are kind of on my list as well. But the, the one kind of person that we, we do want to be around and should want to be around as Christians is the braggart that brags about and in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we should be regularly bragging about what Jesus has done, what he's accomplished, what he's doing. We should be boasting about what he has done in our lives and other people's lives. This is fair game. This is a mark of humility. This is a mark of a true worshiper. And this is where Paul ends his letter to the Galatians. He ties in this theme that's been woven through Galatians, which is about trusting in works of a law, trusting in your own good deeds to merit grace from God. And he says, that's out of bounds. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. It's not by your works. Not even the sign and seal of the covenant, which was circumcision. It's not, it's not that that impresses God. Christ is the object of our, our, our praise. Christ is the foundation of our faith. We are here today because there is a God who is gracious. That, that's, where it all, that's what it all boils down to, folks. We are here because there's a God who is gracious. When I sit in service and I... I'm worshiping through song. I try as often as I can to do business with God before I come up and preach. So I'm like, is there sin in my life? Is there anything I said, did, saw, participated in that would dishonor the Lord? And I confess that to the Lord. I confess that to the Lord. And I have confidence in my humanity every once in a while. I'm like, is he really gonna forgive me? But in my, in my spirit, I know he will because I know I serve a God of grace. I, I didn't merit my way into his good books. My salvation, your salvation is grounded, founded, based on, anchored to the amazing grace of God. Something we need to be reminded of all the time. It's by salvation, is by grace, through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if that's true, then we should be worshiping him, right? Praising him. Boasting in Christ then will be an inevitable byproduct of a truly transformed life. So you can tell if a person's saved, if they're born again, if they're truly regenerate, if they're truly a child of God, by making sure they have the gospel right in their mind, that they're trusting in the right Jesus, they understand the cross of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished for them, but you're also gonna see byproducts of it. You're gonna see fruit. 
you are going to see certain attitudes and behaviors manifested in their lives. And one of the things you're going to hear coming out of their mouths regularly is bragging about Jesus, boasting about Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. On the other hand, if you're more concerned about yourself than Christ, you, you either need to recalibrate and allow the gospel to operate on a deeper level in your life, or you may not be saved. It's all about you. Even if you come to church because it's about you, it's your opportunity to, to shine, that's ungodly. That's not becoming of a believer. So to be blunt, you can tell a false gospel in part by who gets the credit. You can tell a false gospel in part by who gets the credit. You can also tell it by looking at the substance of its creed. But you can also tell by who gets the credit. And I'm just going to make it super simple for you. All false religions attribute some of the credit to you. That's how it works. You do this, you do that, you pray this way, you kneel in this way, you go through your prayer beads, you look at some icon, you perform certain deeds, you read some book, and God's, God's given out the brownie points. He's given out the gold stars. He's giving you the credit. Now, we are, we are interested in good works, but not as a means of our salvation, as a response to God's grace. That's really critical for us to understand. So here's what the gospel does. The gospel makes us authentic, necessarily, inevitably. The gospel makes us authentic. As we enter back into Galatians, it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, see what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Paul here, at the tail end of Galatians, puts this peculiar statement in to tell his listeners that he actually physically, with his own hand, wrote the book of Galatians. Like, okay, Wouldn't, shouldn't we assume that? Well, not necessarily. One of the things that people would commonly do in ancient times prior to having Google Docs or Word at their disposal in a day and age where you were writing on expensive papyrus, woven reed documents with expensive writing utensils, you know, writing wasn't something that everybody had the capacity to do to the same degree as you would hire it out. You'd hire it out. You would, you would hire someone to do the writing for you. Now, Paul was an educated man, but he wasn't a professional amanuensis. So an amanuensis is a hired scribe that would write. You would dictate, and they would write for you. An example of this is found in Romans, where at the beginning of Romans, clearly Paul is the author. But at the end of Romans, Paul had hired a Christian by the name of Tertius, who was an amanuensis, and in chapter 16, verse 22, it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So he wanted to kind of throw in a little, hey, by the way, hey guys, this is from Paul, but I just want to say hi while I'm writing this out for Paul. So this is common, but in Galatians, for some reason, Paul specifies that his unique handwriting, he obviously wrote in large letters, was some sort of an authentication for his words. Now, that, that's important. Now, we, we, we want to be a little bit careful when we're exegeting passages like this that we don't draw 
too many conclusions, but I think that one of the reasons for this is because Galatians is so personal and Galatians is, is addressing an issue that is so critical in Paul's mind. So Romans, of course, is addressing some critical issues, but it, it does read more like general instruction, whereas Galatians is speaking into a crisis in the church. So it's, it's more, it has more of a sense of urgency to it. You guys are getting the gospel wrong. You're listening to false teachers. So I got to get this message out. And it's, it's more confrontational in many respects. And it's, it would seem to me that the reason why Paul specifies that he wrote it is because he doesn't want there to be any gap, any period of time where people are questioning the authority of the author. Apparently, if, we, if you read different passages in the New Testament, there was a problem at times between people writing fake letters. Fake news is not, always, is not just a modern issue. Writing fake letters on behalf of Paul or on behalf of others to try to get their way with the church. So it was important to authenticate these books. And perhaps when, when Romans was written, because it wasn't so urgent, it was a period of time to authenticate it. But he didn't have time to authenticate this. He might've been in a hurry to get this message out. So he writes with his own hand. I, I have this suspicion that the, the reason why he writes in large letters is because, as I mentioned before, that his thorn in the flesh was an eyesight issue. And so he tended to write in large block letters. He would tend to hire it out, but on occasion he would write it himself. And his large block letters were an indication of that. Again, we don't wanna be dogmatic about that or go off and start a new church where that's a core distinctive. But I, I think it makes sense, best as we can tell, that this was likely his thorn in the flesh. Now, the reason why I, I've spent a little bit of time explaining this is not just to give you a historical backdrop, but because I think it illustrates Paul's passion to get the gospel right. He didn't want there to be any wiggle room for people saying, oh, I'm not sure this is actually a letter from Paul. It's going to take us six months to figure that out in a day and age where news traveled much more slowly. No, he wanted, he was, he had an urgent, passionate desire to ensure that false gospels were immediately weeded out of this church. So the book ends with a certain oomph as Paul emphasizes his apostolic authority, just as it began in chapter one with a certain oomph when he's like, hey, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one we delivered to you, let him be eternally damned. Let him be anathema. So it's, it's, it's an important message. There's, there's a certain sense in which it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to read Galatians lightheartedly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a heavy book. It's an important book. And I think if Paul's that passionate about the gospel, then you and I need to be equally passionate about the gospel. So are you? Are you passionate about getting the gospel right? Paul was, we should be. Make sure we get the gospel right in our own minds, in our preaching, and in our interaction with other folks. Now, on the other hand, while the gospel makes us authentic, false gospels produce braggarts. So you gotta kind of follow the logic here. False gospels produce braggarts. In verse 12, the text goes on to read, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, meaning to be accredited for their external efforts, 
who would force you to be circumcised. Again, if you're just joining us, there's this whole theology of circumcision as a backdrop to this book where circumcision was performed on baby boys at eight days of age as a sign and seal of entry into the old covenant, which largely revolved around this idea of a seed promise, physical offspring, ultimately Christ being the the, the ultimate manifestation of that physical offspring because he was in the line of Abraham, he was in the line of David, he was the ultimate Messiah. The, the, The Old Testament largely revolves around this ongoing theme that God would bless Abraham and make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. So therefore, this, while it's a little gross perhaps to think about, circumcision became the physical sign and seal on a sexual organ to remind the people perpetually generation after generation of that covenant. So entering into the new covenant, there were some false teachers, Judaizers, going around trying to Judaize Christianity and forcing people to be circumcised as a sign and seal of entry into the new covenant. And Paul's like, no, that's not how it works. So this is what's going on here is the backdrop. There are those who wanna make a good showing in the flesh. So this is interesting. They're, they're promoting circumcision and the, in doing so, they're, they're committing a doctrinal error, a theological error. They're mixing up covenants. But there's something beyond that, beyond a doctrinal error, there's something being revealed about them. And what's being revealed about them is the reason why they were forcing these rules upon early Christians is because they took confidence in the externals, in their efforts, not just their circumcision, but in their efforts, in perhaps their religious garb, in the tone of their voices, whatever it might've been. You could add endless things to the list. But he goes on to say, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Okay, so they're, they're committing themselves to good deeds. They're committing a doctrinal error. They're somehow trying to take credit for their own religiosity, but they're also trying to avoid suffering. Hmm. How is that? How is it that they're, by being circumcised, avoiding suffering? After all, circumcision is painful. Well, verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Even those that say, these are the laws you need to keep in order to be right with God, they all fail. They fail, but at the same time, they're taking credit for it. And instead of bragging in the cross of Christ and being persecuted for it, they're bragging in their own efforts, which in fact, they haven't even been able to attain. This is the hypocrisy of false religion. But they deserve to have but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. So you see how sick this whole mentality of a works-oriented gospel is? Taking credit for things you're not even capable of accomplishing, trying to force it on others so you can then take credit for their religiosity, trying to avoid participation in the suffering of Christ, being persecuted because the cross of Jesus Christ, you know why the cross of Jesus Christ is so offensive? 
because it tells you, you cannot measure up by yourself. You can't cut it. You can't make the grade. That, that offends people because deep inside, each of us wants to take the credit for our standing with God. Each of us wants a little pat in the back. Hey, look at me. I'm a pastor. Hey, look at me. I read the Bible every day. Whatever it might be. We all want a little cred for our standing with God. And the Judaizers, he exposes them. Why were they insisting on good works? To get the credit. Not only were they, they weren't even content to get the credit for their own religiosity. They wanted the credit for your religiosity. Hey, look at how many converts we have to our way of thinking. And yet the true, unadulterated, pure, authentic gospel is centered on, founded on, and grounded on the righteousness of Jesus. Not your righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Christ's work centers on what? The cross, the way of suffering from his birth onward. Being born in a manger, I know we have our little idyllic manger scenes on our front lawns, but they're kind of smelly in real life. You go into a cow barn, there's manure there. Cows aren't the cleanest creatures. I know, I have several. I can guarantee you there's not a mom in this room that would feel comfortable dropping her newborn baby into an actual cattle trough. But from the very beginning, Jesus was born in a place of humility and degradation. And then throughout his life, didn't own anything, was an itinerant preacher, was ultimately crucified. I mean, even when he was buried, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Couldn't even afford his own grave. And yet, he accomplished so much in his humility by sacrificing and substituting his perfect self for our imperfect selves. And so to be a Christian is to walk in, to participate in, to identify with the sufferings of Christ. Does that make sense? It's to walk in, to participate in, to identify with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And so to stake your life on his persecution, his sacrifice, means you've just opened yourself up to the exact same thing. Now here's the rub. Western Christians have had it good for so long that we don't even have a particularly good theology of suffering. It's kind of foreign to us. We've had it good for a long time, folks, largely because of the efforts of past Christians to Christianize culture. So we've had it pretty good. Freedom to worship, the Protestant work ethic, work six days, rest in the seventh, individual autonomy, autonomy over your family, all sorts of great things, individual soul liberty, and on and on and on. And that's why the nations of the world, without exception, have flocked to historically Christianized countries because Christianity offers culture something that false religions do not. 
But time goes by, you don't study history. You don't think about these matters. You're sort of just living in the moment. You get your tunnel vision. And suddenly you lose sight of the blessings you have and you start to become a materialist, a secularist. And God is not necessary because we have everything we need. Why do we need God? So the Western Christians in particular aren't used to suffering. That doesn't even make sense to us. I I, I signed up for this Christian thing because I thought God was going to fix my problems. Is that not the mindset that many have? And there are false churches that promote that. Come to church, you'll get health, wealth, prosperity. It's guaranteed. Life's going to be good. You're all going to have Cadillacs next week. And then you start to see Western civilization crumbling. And it's like, what in the world is this? I'm not used to this. I don't know how to respond to this. But you know what? People around the world in other countries are used to suffering for Christ. Did you know that on July the 4th, 2022, so what's that? A couple weeks ago, a week and a half ago, across the pond in Pakistan, Ashfaq Massa, this is the name of this man, was sentenced to death by hanging for saying to a Muslim who had come into his business that refused to pay his bill because he's like, I'm a Muslim, I'm not going to pay you for, I think it was a car repair or computer repair. He was sentenced to death in the country of Pakistan for saying, quote, Jesus is the true prophet, end quote. Off to the noose. Now his, his case is still in the appeal process from what I understand. This is not abnormal, but we just don't hear about it. But throughout time, Christians have been burned at the stake, have been run out of town, have been imprisoned for years on end simply for saying Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. But here we are in the West and we don't have that experiential background. We're just sort of comfortable and we, we, unfortunately, to our shame, we often do everything in our power to retain our comfort and avoid getting in trouble for being Christians. Well, times are changing. Times are changing. And we're going to have to learn what it means to actually suffer for Jesus, to suffer for Jesus, to be persecuted for Jesus. You know why, folks? Because there's something very offensive about Jesus. Jesus disallows you from boasting about yourself. He doesn't allow it. You can boast about yourself in Islam. I pray five times a day. You can boast about yourself in Hinduism. You can boast about yourself in Buddhism. You can boast about yourself in sectarian schismatic forms of Christianity, but you cannot boast about yourself in biblical Christianity. You can't. Disallows it. So even law keepers, even the righteous among us fail and prove themselves to be inadequate. And so their boast is even inauthentic. Like it's one thing to boast about something you've actually accomplished. Maybe you're the world's strongest man. But to, to say you're the world's strongest man and you're, you're, you don't even come close. So now you're boasting about something that's not even true. And when you boast about your efforts in relationship to God, you're boasting about something that's not even true. It's not even accurate. 
So what does the gospel do? It drives us, it points us to boast in the cross. Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, crucifixion results in what? Death. So it's like the, the world is dead to me is what Paul is essentially saying in, to summarize it. The world is dead to me and I to the world. My confidence is not in the world and, and I really can't offer anything to the world for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. It's literally irrelevant in the kingdom of God, but a new creation. So here's the attitude that we must also adopt. The world is dead to me. I'm not gonna boast in my job, far be it from me. Do you think I'm gonna, I'm gonna boast in my, my promotion? I'm gonna stake my identity on my, my retirement? My, my children, my possessions, my car, my good looks. No, far be it from, I'm not going to boast in those things. And yet folks, in our immaturity, is it not commonplace for us to find a certain measure of undue satisfaction and boasting in this wood, hay and stubble world that we live in? It is. People are like so excited because they got a deal on something or so excited because their kid got an A plus at school and are so excited because their kid you know, went into the NBA or whatever. It's like, okay, th- those are good things to be thankful for, but that's not, that's not your identity. That's wood, hay, and stubble. It's not, that's not where we find our truest hope. So we, we need to remind ourselves of this often. We live in a physical world. God entrusts us with material possessions. We are stewards but it's not our source of hope. So assess yourself. Really assess yourself right now. Don't just listen to the words, but do a little soul searching. Assess yourself. Do you discuss the work of Christ in your life? Is this regular? Is this something you do? Is this a, a, something people would say, yeah, that, that, that man or that woman, when I'm around them, they talk a lot about Jesus. Or is the first thing out of your lips something about you? Something about that you've accomplished? something about your material possession, something about your lineage, your ethnicity, whatever. What what are people most likely to hear out of your lips? You or Jesus? You or Jesus? Do your conversations revolve around the things you have accomplished the person you are, what you bought, your latest promotion, or Jesus. Again, it's not sinful in a benign, neutral conversation to say, oh yeah, I just bought a new lawnmower. Okay, whatever. Who cares? We have conversations about benign things. But if there's a sense of excitement about your stuff and who you are, and there's not that, equal excitement or greater excitement about Jesus and his accomplishment, you need to kind of make some adjustments in your life. And so would I. Others will notice it in all likelihood. So you should notice it in yourself. So ruthlessly assess yourself and be aware. This, by the way, is what we could call radical humility. When we're boasting in Christ, not in self. 
The externals were reminded again and again in Galatians are pointless as a means to meriting salvation, but rather an ontological change, a change of being has taken place within us. We are new creatures in Christ. We become a new creation in Christ, dead to sin, alive to walk in newness of life. I hope you understand that. If you go to the gym and take out a membership, you get your card, you get your pass, and you're a member of that gym. And hopefully being a member of that gym will benefit you. You'll get fit, you'll lose weight, up your cardio. Okay, so it will help and assist you, but it doesn't change you. You're still you. Whether you have big muscles or small muscles, you are still you. You go to the university, you earn a degree, you spend four years, you come out, you have your degree. Okay, fine, you might be smarter, or nowadays dumber, more woke, but let's say you are smarter. Okay, fine, you're smarter, you have more knowledge now, but you are still you. Degrees can't change you. A membership at the gym can't change you. Attending the mosque can't change you. But the cross of Jesus Christ has the capacity to change you. You are literally made alive in Christ. You are born again, spiritually we're talking. You become a new creature. There's an ontological and internal change in the life of a true, authentic believer. God looks at you different. The righteousness of Christ has been applied to you. You are Christ's son or daughter. You have status now and stature with God. And it's all borrowed. <laughs> it's Christ's stature. It's Christ's righteousness that's applied to you. So this is why Paul, understanding this clearly, says, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord, Jesus Christ. The world's dead to me. That's not my identity. My identity is not in my vocation. It's not in my ministry. It's not in my religiosity. It's not in my marital status. Oh, my life would be so much better if I was married. I just can't function. That's not your identity. Paul, by the way, was single. His identity wasn't in his marital status. This is radical humility. An ontological change takes place inside of us when we trust in Jesus Christ. And then there's a result. The result is that boasting in Christ brings blessing, much blessing, great blessing. Boasting in Christ brings so much blessing. Look at the blessings that are specified here. 16, verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, what is the rule? The sum total of his teaching. Peace and mercy be upon them. And upon the Israel of God. If you are a new creation and you are trusting in the Lord, you will have access to something that the godless do not have access to. Peace and mercy. Peace out, man. You know, I get a VW van. I get a peace sign. I, I'm wearing a headband. I'm wearing bell bottoms. I'm at peace. No, you're not. You're not at peace. You're faking it. True peace, true satisfaction is found when you know that you are saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in this world, 
you are on a course for heaven. You are Christ's son or daughter. That's, that's what helps you to sleep well at night. You know what despair is? It's momentary forgetfulness that we serve a God who is gracious and merciful and sovereign. That's despair. That's a lack of peace. When we find ourselves in despair, depressed about life, if we're Christians, if we're not Christians, you have reason to be depressed. But if we're Christians who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and we're, we're down in the dumps all the time, it's because we have temporarily forgot this, that our identity is in Christ, that we are new creatures in Christ. We have access to peace. How can you be so at ease in a world that is falling apart? Because I know how this all ends and because I know who I am. How can you be so merciful and forgiving to others? <laughs> Do you know what kind of mercy I've received? And we are also called the Israel of God, meaning that we participate in the faith-based, not necessarily the material, but the faith-based covenantal blessings given to Abraham, which ties together one people of God throughout history. How were people saved 5,000 years ago? By faith in a God of grace. How are they saved today? By faith in a God of grace. How will they be saved tomorrow? By faith in a God of grace. This is what ties us together, old covenant and new covenant. One people of God throughout history who have trusted in the revealed word of God and found comfort in a God of grace and mercy. So if this is true, let's live our identity. Sleep well at night, brother, sister. Sleep well at night. Go out and do battle with the forces of darkness during the day. Speak the truth. Combat evil. Be ruthless with sin in your life. And then let it go and sleep peacefully. And trust in the Lord. And then manifest that mercy and grace and love to other people. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, Paul said. I, I don't want to come back and re-preach this sermon. I don't want to have to come back next year and re-preach this sermon series. From now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What is, what is Paul referring to? Well, likely by this point, he'd already been whipped several times for his faith. Right? Literally whipped several times for his faith. Paul was shipwrecked. He's tossed in jail several times. He was beaten up. <laughs> We're like, oh, someone posted a nasty comment about me on Twitter. You know, I'm going to move up to the boreal forests. You know, can't handle the persecution. Well, this guy bore in his body the marks of Jesus Christ. He, he had proven that he had identified in the most intimate way with Christ. Paul may have been falsely accused of many things and it caused him, that caused him trouble, but his identification with Christ was what truly mattered to him. And I'm sure he had moments where he forgot that, temporary lapses. Oh, I forgot that, I wasn't living that way today. But he understood the truth and that kept him grounded. And that's what we need to understand the truth to keep us grounded. So there's gonna be days and we forget this, we kind of drift a little bit. This brings us back. This, these truths bring us back. And then we have this final 
send off, which is a beautiful send off. It's a great way to, to, to end the letter. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's concept number one. Be with your spirit, that's concept number two. Brothers, that's concept number three. Amen, that's concept number four. All four of those are important. It's a great send off. He reminds them of grace because that's the theme of the book. He reminds them that that grace has had an eternal effect on us. It's not just mental, it's affected our spirits. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May it be an internal reality, not just something you've heard, not just something you checked off a box at a church creed, but may it be in your spirit. We are brothers, we are a spiritual family, we're in this together and amen. That means so be it. May this be true of us. May this be true of me. May this be true of you. And as a result, may God be greatly glorified and we, may we be greatly enriched. 